Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that that psalm and prayer can be answered in Jesus Christ and His shed blood that we celebrate this morning. And that is the reason that we gather this communion Sabbath day. We thank You for the broken body and the spilled payment for our sin in the God-man Jesus Christ, the only sufficient propitiatory sacrifice for the cleansing of the sin of all of the elect. Every blood-bought saint in this room is here gathered because of the power of Christ to redeem and to create in us a clean heart, to renew us, to wash away our sin and to clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate this this morning, our salvation. We rejoice in the fact that we are the redeemed We are saints and members of the household of God because of the work of Christ alone. And now as we set our minds and attention on the Scriptures, I pray that the beautiful intricacies, glories, and the praiseworthy themes of redemption would flood our hearts and minds, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, encouraging and convicting the downtrodden and distracted so that sins besetting and otherwise might be repented of this morning, and that we might grow in our faith and add to our faith understanding as we see the beautiful truth of Jesus Christ our Lord unfolded in the pages of Scripture this morning. It is in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege it is to gather together in worship and celebration of the truth of the gospel this morning. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. This morning, we'll cover the second portion of Hebrews 3, which is sort of a sermon within a sermon, where the author of Hebrews takes as his text Psalm 95. Gene opened our call to worship this morning with the first half of Psalm 95. And the second half provides the theme and the text for the author of Hebrews to expound and apply the words. And what we have here are lessons from Exodus, the wilderness wanderings of God's people that are referred to in Psalms, are referred to in Hebrews, referred to, of course, in the Exodus account. And this morning we will refer to them to see what Exodus lessons we can learn and apply through the help of the Scriptures and the Spirit, writing them on the table of our heart this morning. So stand with me if you would, and let us read together Hebrews 3, 7 through chapter 4, verse 3. Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 3. The Word of God reads as follows. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. For forty years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, 
today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 4 verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as He has said, as I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. We'll pause there. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. In chapters 3 and 4 of this great book of Hebrews, the author takes Psalm 95 as his text and applies the lessons of wilderness wanderings and the promise of Canaan in that narrative of Old Testament covenant history He applies that to his audience in his day, perhaps 40 years after Christ walked this earth and was then ascended to the Father. A remnant had been gathered out of distant lands. These, we presume, were Jews prior to coming to Christ, displaced from their geographic center, Jerusalem, yet now finding their unity in Christ as Christians, yet tempted perhaps by many factors persecution, old traditions to wander from the faith. So taking Psalm 95 as his text and his authority to represent. Let's go to Hebrews 3, verse 7 and 8 and see exactly what that attitude is. Verses 8 and 9, in fact. Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works, For forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. You might ask yourself this question How could it possibly be said of the first generation of freed slaves from 430 years of oppression whose deliverance to the land of Canaan was marked? by a sea that was parted by the hand of God, by pursuing chariots that were drowned in the same, by water that broke forth from a rock and fed them in the wilderness, by quail that flew miles to feed them in the desert, by manna that appeared every morning, by a cloud that accompanied them by day, by a fire pillar that led them by night. How could it be possibly be said of the first generation of freed slaves who experienced all this that they had not known the ways of the Lord. I'll tell you why it could be said. It is because they did not hear the admonition to repent today, but they hardened their hearts. They did not hear the imminence in the law that said you are a sinner that needs to be right and in right standing with the Lord. And instead of submitting to the test of the Lord, by the sovereign dictates of His holiness through the law, and bowing their hearts humbly in obedience, and in faith seeking for hope in the midst of God's revelation 
and a future Messiah represented by these sacrifices who would provisionally cover their sin and expectation of a once-for-all Messiah in the future instead of humbling themselves before that testing of the law. What did they do? They turned the tables. They presumed to turn the tables on the Lord of glory. And instead of submitting to the test of the Lord, finding themselves wanting and repenting, they presumed to test Him. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. You know what? I think I'll be around tomorrow. I'll test the Lord. I'll see if He's patient with me one more day. I'll test the Lord. I'll put off to tomorrow what I could repent of today and see if uh, my experience doesn't prove to be true where I will continue to live day after day and I don't really have to take seriously this admonition from the firestorm on Sinai saying, repent before the holiness of Almighty God. Fear me, I am righteous and just and true. Submit to my way of salvation because if you do not, your hearts will be hard in self-righteousness, hard in your sin, hard in your idolatry and you will put off tomorrow till tomorrow, which you are called to today. And that, brothers and sisters, is dangerous. If it was so dangerous that it proved to be more powerful than the memory of the Red Sea parting and leading His people across the pathway of that body of water to freedom, if it was that dangerous, this hardness of heart that would cause forgetfulness under those conditions, let us, as the Word admonishes, fear, lest any of us fail to reach it. Let us submit to Christ while His promise of rest still stands, while it is called today. Because today, if we hear His voice and do not harden our hearts as in the day of rebellion, then we are submitting to the Lord. Moses named the place where the rock was split and the water poured out by two names. Massa was one. Testing is what it means, translated. The other term is Meribah, which means embitterment, which speaks of the rebellion of the people. Moses was one who was a faithful servant and who did have a relationship with the Lord that was commendable. We read that in the same passage. Though, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 3, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Goes on to say, verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. Last week we recalled, I believe it was in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 29 and following or so, that when Moses was writing his final record to the people, he wrote down the law again, and he, commissioned the, he, he uh, commanded the priest to place it beside the Ark of the Covenant. And he said, I'm writing this law as a witness and testimony against these people Because I know soon I will die and their rebellion will be even amplified. They will double down on their hardness and they will forget the God that brought them out of slavery. And you can imagine how frustrating it would have been on any given day for Moses, a man that was faithful and a servant and submissive to the Lord, to live with the people so obstinate of heart. But it's easy to imagine that obstinance of heart, is it not, when we look inside ourselves How many of us can truly, honestly say we relate more to Moses than the doofuses he was leading through the wilderness? I know for one, I find myself more days in weak moments uh, relating to the crowds that followed him 
and their stupidity and their wayward hearts, prone to leave the truth behind and embrace doubt, distance from the covenant, double-mindedness, and autonomous presumption more often than not. But just the fact that we recognize ourselves in the story as those who are prone to wander can be proof that the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart and of mine. And if He's knocking on the door of your heart, even as I feel Him knocking in the giving of this word this morning, what are we to do? Not to test the Lord by waiting to tomorrow, till tomorrow, but instead repenting today. On the flip side of the coin, rather than being embittered and rebellious of doubting and presuming upon the patience of the Lord and testing Him, how might we respond instead? Well, Hebrews goes on to declare a record of those who stood against the grain of apostasy. We see in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, as it's sometimes referred to, those who in their faith endured. They endured the mockery and the unpopularity of the context in which they diligently served the Lord. They did not have a whole lot of glowing report. In fact, none of them in and of themselves. But they did have something else that was different than the culture around them. They had the indwelling Holy Spirit that gave them grace to stand where others shook their fist in the face of the Lord. These were the ones that were persecuted, thrown to lines, stoned, sawn in two. But they were also ones who by God's grace experienced amazing answers to prayer and glorious inclusion in His calling for them to testify to the truth of the gospel in the context in which they were born. Some of them received their dead back to life. And all of them had the privilege of shining for the glory of Christ in either life or in death. But let us learn from their lesson and from this testimony of Scripture not to accept the unbelieving premise of putting God on trial, as it were, but instead listening to the admonition of Scripture that today we are signaled to respond to the Lord because He is ruling and reigning on His throne right now, this hour. Chapter 3, verse 13, secondly, under urgency, there's a sense of what we can do to seize the day. This, again, is the practical application. What might we do to be faithful to the calling to take advantage of today? Verse, three, or verse 13 in chapter 3 tells us as much, but exhort one another daily. It is every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I should back up to verse 12 and read those two verses again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's the warning again, verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I wonder how many of you have heard the phrase carpe diem, carpe diem. It's sort of popular. It's Latin, which is a cooler way to say stuff, carpe diem. Uh, It means seize the day. Carpe diem was made famous by some, I don't know, ancient pagan poetry or something. And it shows up in classical literature as a sort of mantra, uh, a motto, seize the day, make the most out of every moment. And this is not a concept that is foreign to our culture. In fact, uh, it wasn't too long ago, I was kind of chuckling to myself. We were at a water park with the family, 
And across the broad shoulders of a gentleman in front of me, I saw in Latin old English, old English letters, you know, carpe diem. And uh, I couldn't help but thinking this is a confession on my part. Judging by the relative girth of this individual, I, in my mind I kind of saw carpe donut. But uh, nevertheless, whether he was living up to it or not, he had a desire that the tattoo testified to, to seize the day, right? Do you guys remember a couple of um, examples of this in popular culture? There was a movie we watched. It was sort of a heartwarming story uh, years ago called Secondhand Lions. It was about a couple of older gentlemen who fought and, you know, all, all, the, all these great adventures overseas. They were successful against the odds. And uh, they, through the course of their adventures, assembled a huge treasure, treasury uh, and all of this, all this accrued this wealth. Well, they finally resided in the center of Texas to live out their golden years. And um, they would spend their days with a shotgun on their lap, you know, threatening the salesman who would knock on their door. But every once in a while, the salesman could talk them into something. And through the years, they bought a yacht and they placed it in their pond. And it was so big, you could only move about 10 feet forward or back. In the final scene of the movie, it's a biplane upside down crashed into a barn. And implied was the way these guys went out when they finally got old is they said, you know what, whatever. We're going to get in this plane we just bought from the latest salesman. We're going to see if we can fly it upside down through our barn. And the cop says to the son who comes and sees the scene, says, they really lived. There's another way of saying carpe diem. And he says, yeah, it was the profound kind of punch of the movie. The money moment right at the end. They really lived. Well, that is a metaphor for the values of our culture. We live in a society today where really living is flying a biplane upside down straight into a a broadside of a barn. That's really living. That's carpe diem for us. Well, I would submit to you, when we think about these things, like how can I get the most out of life? How can I seize the day? Why not answer that question biblically? How can you seize the day? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us exactly how. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I have been blessed with one more day. What will I do with it? Will I serve myself? Will I dance like nobody's watching? Will I smile at all the strangers? Or will I call a brother or sister in Christ? And will I pray for them and ask them how they're doing in their walk with the Lord? Will I call my brother when I'm in a weak moment as I needed to do yesterday for prayer? Pray for me. In my study, I feel like I'm kicking against the goads of my own flesh. And so I call. Tim answers. And I repent for not calling him sooner. Those are the seize the day moments that Scripture says are what we ought to do to take advantage out of life. It is true, we don't know if we will see tomorrow. It is true, every waking moment is a gift. How can we demonstrate appreciation and worship to the Lord in light of that reality? By seeking to glorify Him His way by looking to Scripture. And that is how we can seize the day. There's a sense of urgency An urgency in these scriptures that tell us, be careful not to test the Lord, but instead to submit to His test, and also to take every opportunity each day to seize it for His glory by doing things like serving the body of Christ through prayer and mutual exhortation. 
Finally, I'll leave you under urgency with this sense of the fear of the Lord. Reading again 4 verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This urgency, signaled by the term today, again here is applied to a sense of a godly and biblical fear of the Lord. If that promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, let us take it seriously, not with a sort of complacent, lethargic, cavalier attitude, but an earnestness, a zeal, and an attention, and an awareness to the truth of the gospel. Let us fear the Lord, lest any of us should fail to reach it. We have glorious assurance of our salvation by the the seal of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures say, but every individual that is held up as an example, put forth as an example for us of what the Christian life looks like in Scripture, also lived in light of that indwelling Holy Spirit with a sense of earnestness, as Paul was wont to use, with a sense of the fear of the Lord, as the author of Hebrews reiterates here, with a sense of pressing on to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That is something that you should look for and cultivate in your spiritual walk. A certain intensity, earnestness, zeal, and fear of the Lord to press on and press in to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is where we are the safest. We are the safest when we are rushing headlong towards what God has called us to. We think of David when he left the battlefront and decided to spend a little leisure time on the roof of his palace how easily he was distracted. In those moments, by poor example, he was not fearing the Lord by obedient service to his kingdom and, was then a ca- and then became very quickly a casualty of his own sin. But those who fear the Lord recognize their own weakness and tendency towards distraction, towards waywardness and error. And so they press into good doctrine. They press into good Bible study. They press into obedience They press into prayer and association and fellowship with the believing community of Jesus Christ. And they press in to shine for the gospel even though the days are dark. They press forward with a certain fear of Him that is signaled by this sense of urgency. And they heed the words of Hebrews chapter 4 that says, Today hear His voice. Do not harden your hearts in the day of rebellion, the day of testing in the wilderness. Secondly, this morning, as point of emphasis, is signaled, and a point of emphasis of understanding is signaled by the pronouns. In other words, the lessons of Exodus were not just for the people who lived then, but the lessons of Exodus, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, were recorded so that we can learn them now. This is true of the audience of the uh, letter to the Hebrews, but also should be true of us this morning. Verse 16 in chapter 3 we read, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us, just as to them. 
but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. So you can see here by the pronouns, the whom and the who, and also the us and the we, that there's a personalizing and an application of the lessons of Exodus that the author wants to impress on the hearers. For instance, in 3.16, he asks rhetorically for who were those who heard and yet rebelled. In other words, there was a glorious revelation and proclamation of the truth of God, His power and works and word in the Exodus account. But those who heard it also rebelled. And then the question is, you know, is why? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And the point here is that you can leave Egypt, you can be led by Moses as it were, what that situation represents. You can be, that is to say, no strangers to the extraordinary, yet still be jaded by a hardness or by a condition of your own heart. Some of us have grown up in the faith, and all of us from today on have heard the gospel, if I've represented it well in the context of the scriptures this morning, at least once. We, if we have listened to the scriptures, read a single Bible verse, heard a story in passing of the mighty works of the Lord, we have been witnesses to the extraordinary. But the lesson that the author of Hebrews is diligent to share with his readers, which include us this morning, is that we can be no strangers to the extraordinary. We can experience in our memories and in our intellect, in our hearing, and even as we read for ourselves, great evidence of the mighty works of the Lord. Perhaps personally experiencing answer prayer in our own lives, listening to the scriptures proclaimed from a pulpit like this, reading or listening to the stories from Bible teaching, through the years as we grew up, as we grow up among the faithful, we can experience all that and still be jaded by something. Today, these days, it seems that we are prone to wander just like the Hebrews were, perhaps by something we could identify as existentialism. Existential, it means experience. It's another way to say it could be sort of like experienceism. There is a sense in the American mind that thing, something is true or valuable if I experience it according to my expectations consistently. And how many of us, if we are honest, tend to live our Christian lives just like this? Uh, attitude that says, if euphoric feelings don't remain my constant experience, if my expectations doesn't, do not um, sa- satisfy or do not squ- square with my experience, then this life direction is not really worth the effort. How many of us are so easily swayed from faithfulness to the Lord when those euphoric feelings of being wowed when the Red Sea splits don't continue as our feet get blisters on our fifth day of wandering as a newly freed slave across the wilderness toward Canaan? You see, we are just like those who followed Moses, usually begrudgingly, We can experience the Lord intervening in our lives and we can soon forget that memorial and only think about the blisters on our feet in the latest trial. We are so prone to forgetfulness. We are just like those who are 
told in this story, not as the hero, but often as the villains who heard and yet rebelled, who followed Moses in a sense, but then were led away by their wayward affections. No strangers in their experience to the extraordinary, yet jaded by their experiencism, by their existentialism, their Christian life not living up to their hopes and expectations, and so they're quick to change course, make an arbitrary change, abandon a commitment, uh, just leave a relationship, not follow through on something God has told them to do. Maybe just move. Maybe just leave uh, you know, th- the place that you think represents uh, arduous and uh, uh, trial and burden uh, just for a change of pace and new horizons. This is the sort of wanderlust that is just absolutely systemic in our culture today. Yet we must be careful because those who heard still rebelled in the days of Moses and those who were led by Moses out of Egypt were still among those with whom God was provoked for 40 years. Let us understand how important it is not just to be acquainted with the truth by association, but to submit to the truth and ask that the Lord might write it on the tables of our hearts. So when that sun rises on our seed, it doesn't scorch us because our roots go down deep. And when the trials uh, represented by stones perhaps and sown in our soil or thorns that grow up alongside, we are robust enough in our grounding in the Scripture and our grounding in Christ our Lord that we can resist those varying conditions, and we can continue to bear fruit for the Lord. Secondly, 40 years is mentioned. The bottom of your notes, if you have a copy, you can look through some other references. Genesis 7.4, on your own time later, you can study some of these texts in Genesis 7.17, Deuteronomy 2.7.8.2, Joshua 14.10, Nehemiah 9.21, and there's a whole list there. All these are references where you can look in context and see that the term 40 years has some uh, biblical explanatory content behind it. So when we read in Hebrews 4.17, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? It's good for us to see what 40 years represents in the context of Scripture. And uh, Hughes says it this way, 40 years represents a period of divine long-suffering on the one hand and on the other of testing, which culminates in judgment <clears throat> Excuse me for the unrepentant. What does a period like 40 years represent for the faithful or the faithless, proven so through testing? Well, it represents a period of divine long-suffering on the one hand and on the other of testing, which culminates in judgment for the unrepentant. Commentators have noted this interesting fact. It was likely about one generation since Jesus had ascended when the church received this letter. Perhaps about 40 years had passed since Christ's voice preaching audibly the kingdom of God was heard in the ears of the disciples and the apostles. And now we have people that are removed from that experience directly, both by their experience, their experience being secondhand, presumably through the mouth of the apostles, and whoever wrote the book of Hebrews delivering to them the gospel, and also removed by a generation that may have been fraught with increasing persecution. So here they are. They didn't hear it for themselves with their own two ears. 
They didn't see it with their own two eyes, that is, the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Besides that, a generation now has come and, and passed, and Christ has not returned. And then add insult to injury, we are being persecuted for our faith. A high price is required for our continued fellowship in this thing we call the church of Jesus Christ. This is only 40 years old. Am I just a casualty of deception with an upstart movement of people who are not really grounded? So the author addresses these concerns and he tells them, it is the universal experience of every believer, should they live any length of time, to be tested. They will go through their own 40 years, as it were, of wilderness wanderings. And this, as James writes, will produce its effect when it demonstrates a faith, the faith that's truly on the inside, which leads to assurance of salvation, it bolsters them and then testifies to those around them that their faith, their love of Christ, is stronger than persecution. The might that's represented in imperial Rome in the sword and the right hand of the centurion is no match for the faith indelibly written on the heart of every blood-bought and confessing believer, no matter how close they lived to the actual events in time or how far they were removed by mere time in their experience with Jesus. Why? Well, because their reality of their salvation is true because Christ is true. And it's alive because Christ is alive. And He ever lives and rules and reigns to make intercession for them. So they can go through their 40 years and not be hardened or shipwrecked. But they must remember that they stand on Christ. They must take this wilderness time seriously. The time that you come to Christ and the time He calls you home could well be often described by this 40-year interim period. With whom was He provoked for 40 years? Verse 17, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Brothers and sisters, may it not be said of us, if you have made a profession of faith, may it not be said that Christ is provoked with you because you are wrestling with disillusionment because the trial seems too long, the expectations have not been met, or the difficulty has been proven more painful on this journey to your rest. Stay the course. Stay the course. He is faithful. And the rest that is promised is as secure as your salvation. And it is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thirdly, we find the root of disobedience in verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The root of disobedience is unbelief as we put these thoughts together in this passage. How can we obey the Lord and be more honoring to Him and glorifying to Him in the track record of our testimony? How can we embrace the calling of sanctification where less of our life is lived for self and more is lived in service and fealty to Christ? Well, let us pray that our faith be strengthened. Let us pray that we would uh, set our minds and affections upon the glorious truth of our salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone. And then we can be distinguished from those who do not enter His rest because they are disobedient, unable to enter because of unbelief. So having made these points, our author states then in 4.1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear 
lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, learn the lessons of Exodus. Learn the lessons that were failed to learn by the children of Israel in the 40 years of wandering. Remember the great gift and the sovereign, undeserved uh, blessing God's revealed truth is to you, even in the form of the scriptures we read today. And finally, this morning, under the heading three points of emphasis, there is a point of ultimacy signaled by the term rest. Ultimately, what does salvation promise? What is this rest that the author of Hebrews refers to? We'll cover this more in a subsequent message, Lord willing. But for now, suffice it to say that rest refers to the utmost of salvation, symbolic and certain. There are things that symbolize salvation's goal or end or consummate glory. And this is symbolized in a number of things through covenant history. It's symbolized in the Sabbath rest of God Himself after He created all things. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 4, or chapter 4, verse 4. It was also symbolized in the law, in the Ten Commandments, in the Sabbath. That was, command, that was a commandment, but it was also a commandment so that they might be taught, the children of Israel might be taught, the goal or the end or the ultimate, the utmost of salvation, rest secured in their relationship with Almighty God. And also we, even this morning, are honoring the Christian Sabbath today. But ultimately, there is a fulfillment of this rest in glory. And we will study this more in the future. But this truth needs to be part of our framework and thinking as we move forward in our walk with the Lord. It's a point of emphasis in this text. In chapter 3, again, verses 11 and 12, here we have this first mention. As I swear in my wrath, it says, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there we see the either or. There's an entry into rest or there's an unbelieving heart that falls away. Also in the text we read in verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. Verse 18 again refers to what Canaan represented. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There is a sense in verses 11 and 12 of wrath or rest. When we encounter the living God, we encounter the fearful reality of being ostracized from His favor unless we have a believing heart that is surrendered and submitted to Him. But if we encounter Him, if we stand before the living God, ransomed and redeemed through the shed blood of Christ alone, then we enter into His rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Uh, He has said in verse 11, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When we consider life lived in the context 
before the Lord, uh, before the living God, before the face of God, let us consider this awareness of wrath as a factor, an essential, indispensable factor in our Christian life. We are living in the days of an anemic gospel that is erased from the memory and consciousness of most Christians, most quote-unquote Christians, the reality of the wrath of God. But the reality that our sins deserve judgment helps us to remember what Christ Himself suffered. And it also instills in us a sense of urgency to reach the lost because they yet abide under the wrath of God as enemies of Jesus Christ. And it also instills in us a certain fear that we would take refuge in our Lord, in the living God, in a heart of belief. Because the only option outside the confines of that fortress and strong tower is the judgment and wrath that we deserve. Uh, Secondly, under ultimacy, belief and rest. Biblical faith is a confidence and trust justified by its object. It's a very important concept that the book of Hebrews teaches. Chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And of course, the converse of unbelief is faith. In verse 2, we see, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Belief or faith and rest go hand in hand. The utmost of salvation is available only to those who have faith. Without faith, the Scriptures go on to say it is impossible to please the Lord. If you turn to, you don't need to do so this morning, but in a later time, perhaps studying on your own, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and then on into verse 6, we see the essence of faith expounded. We see that those who claim to have faith must affirm that the Lord is And He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. People are familiar with the concept of faith today, but they think that it's just a trust in really anything, something that can't be verified. It's finding refuge in the subjective. Oh, uh, you know, you can have faith in just about anything. Or faith is, you know, a commitment to something that cannot be empirically verified. Uh, Faith is not science, we hear. It's the opposite of science. Faith is something you do in the religious corner of your private life. Science is something we do out in public discourse. But that's not the right idea. Faith is something different in Scripture. Biblical faith is a confidence or trust that is justified by its object. There is no such thing as a true faith unless that faith has as its object the true God. Faith is trust in God, and if you don't think there's empirically verifiable reason to trust the Lord, then you have another thing coming. This Bible, the fact that you're alive, the grace of today, if you were to count all the reasons that you ought to trust the Lord, you would there would not be enough paper printed in this world, mass-produced in this world, to contain all the reasons you ought to trust the Lord. And the unbeliever knows this. He is without excuse. Yet the only saving faith is the one that places confidence and trust in the only true object of true faith, which is Jesus Christ, which is the triune God of Scripture. Finally, this morning, to help summarize these thoughts, 
two stories came to mind to illustrate and to apply. Is there a point in the Scriptures or a point of example where we could see these three main emphases coming together, like a sense of urgency and an understanding of the content of the gospel and also the promise, the utmost of salvation coming together? The first uh, brief example I want to give to you comes in the form of the testimony of an unlikely sort from an unlikely source, a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know if that name is familiar to you, but I remember when I was in school, when day after day, uh, news channels and you know radio top of the hour news were dominated by a horrific story of a man who would kill and cannibalize his victims. Any number of sundry, gross offenses beyond anything you could possibly imagine this man was guilty of. An, an absolutely, uh, a perverse depravity evident in his behavior almost beyond comprehension. Jeffrey Dahmer in 1994, six months after he was baptized as a Christian in jail, in prison, and one day before he was killed in that same prison, was interviewed by Stone Phillips. He was quoted as saying, and I've watched this video a number of times. Listen to this quote. He says, If a person doesn't think that there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought, anyway. I always believed the theory of evolution is truth. We all just came from the slime. When we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. I have since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God. And I believe that I, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to Him. This man professes faith in Christ on national television. And the next day he was killed by a fellow inmate. There was an urgency in that story. There was an understanding demonstrated in his testimony. If that testimony reflected his heart, how dare we say the blood of Christ is not powerful enough to say one so depraved as Jeffrey Dahmer. You or I are just as wicked in our own hearts in one sense in that we are capable in our sin of every gross atrocity against the glory of Christ. Jeffrey Dahmer understood, it appears, just before his death And six months after he was baptized, that there was a God to be accountable to. And that that God required a reckoning of even his own life. And so if he died pleading the blood of Jesus as his justification, then he received the utmost of salvation. He entered into rest. Rest from the wrath his sin deserved. And rest is represented by heaven through the purchasing power of Christ's blood alone. And the second story that brings together this sense of urgency, understanding, and the utmost of salvation is found in Luke 23. Turn there as we close this message with me this morning. Luke chapter 23. I was talking to a Catholic man one time who understood that I was Protestant and distinctly so. He was talking about things, reasons why he was a Catholic. Most of them had to do with tradition, family, familiarity, culture, and so on. 
and he gave me one reason that he doubted his Catholicism. And that one reason was this story. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, that is at Christ, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, that is, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There was an urgency. There was an understanding. And there was the utmost of salvation promised to this man. All in these moments, what great hope there is for us. Recall again that test question that we opened this message with. Are you close to someone you would not imagine being friends with if it weren't for Christ alone? That's an important question, partly because of what's represented in these elements before us. The communion table this morning represents the binding elements of our fellowship today. It is the body and blood of Christ that substantially address our condition. It's the urgency of our need that is addressed immediately upon regeneration. It is our understanding of the finished work of Calvary that is typified in these elements And it is the sacrifice of Christ that procures and secures our eternal rest and communion with a holy God. You know, some leave the Protestant faith and they join some other communion like the Catholic Church I briefly mentioned before because they're attracted to the physicality. I heard that recently. I I like the tangible element of it. Well, in the book of Hebrews... There was a temptation to return to the tangible elements of the old covenant order as well. They were probably thinking they needed to go to the temple. There are some who pray and hope for the temple to be rebuilt, even today. Today I heard a great quote, something along the lines of, There is a temple, no less physical, where we find refuge, union, fellowship, communion, safety today and that temple is Jesus Christ and he is bodily resurrected from the dead and today we have tangibly before us symbolic representation of what that means so as you taste this bread this morning and as you drink these this cup remember for which it stands Jesus Christ in his shed blood and broken body reached you in your urgent need with the gospel to purchase for you the utmost of salvation, eternal life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of the gospel. I pray that you would etch them indelibly on our hearts even as we take communion today. May we revere you and fear you today. May we also celebrate and rejoice as we take in once again the truth of the gospel Help each of us, Lord, to be unshaken in our faith as we find our foundation on our rock, Jesus Christ. It's in His holy name we pray. Amen.